series uh, this summer talking about deeper friendship. And we know that a lot of people in the summer are moving into Denver and maybe checking out churches. And you're, you, you, one of the reasons for that is you're looking for relationships, right? You're looking for friendships. And, and uh, that's one of the reasons that people come to church is to, to develop community and to look for community. And so we've been talking. And if you haven't been here the first two weeks, I encourage you to uh, listen to those just because each week does build on itself. And uh, we're talking about deeper friendship. What does it look like really to have the kind of friendships that help each other through life? What does it look like to have the kind of friendships that are not just a surface level friendship, that are not just shallow, but are really the kind of friendships that help us through life, They're the kind of friendships that we want. And, and as, we talk about the de- as we talk about that today, uh, what, what's the kind of help that we are talking about? When we say deeper friendships that help each other through life, what's the kind of help that we're talking about, and that's multifaceted, and it could be all sorts of different things, but I want you to think about what it is that, if you're a Christian, uh, what it is that you want in life, and I'm not just talking about goals and um, desires that you have in that kind of way, but if you're a Christian, we have desires in life of stuff that we hope for and, and want with God. We want to be close to God. We, we don't want to feel distant from God. When we're going through suffering, we want to feel like God is present and near and that, and that we have encouragement and that we have comfort from God. If you're, if you're struggling in sin, you, you want to experience God's power to help free you from those things. If, if you're struggling um, in just feeling discouraged in life, you want to feel God's encouragement and you want to feel that uh, God says he's for you and that he is uh, with you. I mean, we want certain things in our life with God. And when we talk about deeper friendship, and we talk about helping each other through life, here's the thing that the Bible says. The Bible says that all that we want in life with God, whether that's comfort or encouragement or power or strength or or change, all that we want in life with God, the Bible says that we cannot get that by ourselves. That all that you and I want out of life with God, whatever that might be, if it's, man, I really want to know him more, I want to be comforted, I want strength, I want power, I want all the different things that we want in life with God, joy and peace. The Bible says we cannot get that by ourselves, that the Christian life is the community life. The Bible says that we will never become who we are intended to be. We'll never experience the things that we want to experience with God. We'll never grow in the ways that we want to grow apart from other people. And so today, I want to talk about why that is. Why it is that we need other people in our life to experience all that's offered in life with God. Why it is that we need other people to be able to grow and and have all the things that we want in life with God, why we need other people for that, and then how we actually do that, and how we become these kind of friends. So let's start with this question, is why do we need others to grow and experience life with God? Why can't we just be independent? Why can't we just kind of handle that on ourselves? You you probably know, I'm assuming, the different things in your life that you say, man, I want to grow in this way. Why can't we just do those independently? Or why can't we just read the Bible and figure it out? Or or why can't we just have a personal relationship with Jesus, as is often said in Christian circles? Why do we need other people to grow and experience life with God? And and to begin to answer that question, I want to talk about the life that we don't want. The life that you and me, the life we don't want to have. 
And we're going to look at this passage, and we'll spend most of our time really looking at different parts of this passage today in Hebrews 3. And he describes the life that we don't want. He describes it really with this word, unbelief. And, and we'll talk about what that means. But, but here's the passage. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 15, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence, confidence firm to the end, as it is said, he's quoting another part of the Bible, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Why do we need others to grow and experience life with God? And here's, here's what he says the problem is. Here's the life that, that we don't want. He uses this word, unbelieving heart. See, the, the life that you and I don't want, is, as it relates to our Christianity, is one of unbelief. So he says, here's what you don't want. You, here's what's the danger, is an unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall away from the living God. Now, as we talk about an unbelieving heart I don't, and falling away from God, don't think about uh, some big thing. Don't think about in your heart going, man, I hate God. Or don't, or don't think about falling away from God as necessarily meaning that you just walk away and say, I'm done. And I don't believe anymore. And, I'm, and that, that can be the case. But he's talking about something that's on a more consistent level, a more mundane level, a more day-to-day -day level that we experience. So the Bible says that the core, one of the core issues that we all face is unbelief. One of the core dangers that you and I face is unbelief. And what that means is this. See, when, what the, the passage that he is referring to when he says, uh, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, he's talking about, and before this passage and then after it, he goes on to explain a little bit more. But he's talking about, in the Old Testament, God's people, the Jewish people, as he was leading them out of slavery in Egypt and he was leading them to the promised land, they're wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And in those 40 years, there was many different opportunities that God offered them, that God spoke to them. And they would reject him in different ways. And there was unbelief in their hearts in different ways. And this didn't mean that they all of a sudden said, hey, we don't think you're God anymore, we're leaving. But what it meant is there was unbelief that's a very common kind of unbelief where God says, here's who I am, or God says, here's what I'm going to do, or God says, here's what I have done. And we go, uh, I'm not sure about that. So some of the issues that they faced were complaining. God would provide for them food, and they would say, ah, we, we don't really like this food. We want something better. And God calls that unbelief. He says, you don't really think I'm a God that's for you. You don't really think I'm a God that cares for you. Or God said, hey, I want you to go into this land, and this is the land that I'm going to make your home, the promised land, for those of you uh, that are familiar. So he says, I, I want you to go into the, this land. And I want, you to, I want you to live here, and I want, you to, I want you to make your homes here, and I want this to be your land. And, and they said, we're scared. We're scared. We, we've heard there's giants in there. We've heard that there's people that will kill us in there. We're scared. And they didn't believe. God said, I'll take care of you. I've, I've got good plans for you. And they were scared. So when this author is talking about, look, here's the life you don't want. He says, the life that you don't want the life that God doesn't want for us could be described as a life of unbelief where we don't really think God's good. 
where we don't really think God's in control, where we don't really think that God is for us. It could be anything. See, think, imagine all the different truths about who God is, and then imagine a life where we don't believe those things, a life where we don't really believe God's forgiven us, a life where we really don't believe that God is for us or will take care of us, or a, a life where we don't believe that God will do the things that he says he will do in the middle of our suffering, that he'll be present with us and he'll work it for good. A life where we don't really believe that the shame that we have is removed. A life where we don't really believe all the different things that God says, here's what's true of who I am and what I do for you. See, when, when this author is saying, here's the life that God doesn't want for you, that, that you don't want, that I don't want, he says, it's a life marked by unbelief, which can express itself in all sorts. It can express itself in fear. It can express itself in complaining. It can express itself in worry. It can express itself in all sorts of other things. It's a life that says, I don't really trust who God is and what he says. And God doesn't want us to miss out. God doesn't want us to miss out on who he is and what he does. Imagine this scenario. Imagine that you're a child and, and you have a dad that's a good dad. He's a really good dad. And maybe some of you had a dad like this. Maybe some of you didn't, so it might be harder to think of. But imagine you have a father that's a good father, and you live in his house. And he cares for you, and he provides for you, and he keeps you safe, and he loves you, and he plays with you, and he, he's a good father. But imagine that as a child, you start to believe that's not true. You start to believe, I don't think my dad's actually going to take care of me. And you start to believe, I think the only reason my dad is playing with me is because he's trying to get something from me. Or you start to believe, man, I don't think my dad's actually going to keep me safe. Or you start to believe, maybe there's other better dads out there. My dad's not good. And for whatever reason, you don't believe what is actually true. See, imagine a child living in a home where he has a good father and he actually does know those things. He knows, man, my dad is good, and he's for me, and he loves me, he's always going to take care of me, he's always going to provide for me, and man, my dad delights in me, and man, if I mess up, my dad's going to have grace. That child is going to be filled with joy, be filled with peace, but a child that doesn't believe what is true about his father will be stressed, will be worried, will be anxious, will be afraid, and God doesn't want us to miss out on who he is. You see, when it says that the core issue is unbelief, the life that we don't want, the life that God doesn't want for us, it's described as unbelief. Not just because God says, this is true and you better believe it, but because God knows who he is, God knows what he does, God knows how he feels about us, God knows what he does for us, and he wants us to be able to live in the truth of that. To be able to go, man, I mean, think about what if you actually did know and believe God is good? And he's for me. And no matter what I'm going through, I know he cares for me. And imagine if you really believed in, in the experience of life that that would be, that all the different sins you've done in your life, man, those don't stand against me. I believe in God's forgiveness. Imagine that you are able to actually believe the truth about who God is. God doesn't want us to miss out that he's good, that he's in control, that he cares for us. He doesn't want us to miss out on those things. And so the core issue, the life that God doesn't want for us, the life that we don't want, is a life of unbelief. 
And he says that the result of this, if we begin to not believe, is that we fall away from God. The result of unbelief, not really knowing who God is, not really trusting who God says he is and what he does, the result of that is we begin to fall away from God. And you can think of that on the extreme of somebody actually says, and sadly I've known many people like this, that say, I'm done. I'm just done with God. But you can also think about it as people that go, you know what, I just don't, I, I, don't, I don't really believe this is who God is. I don't really believe he's for me. He loves me. He's good. He's in control. I don't believe those things. And we start to fall away in a sense of we just ignore. Haven't you ever had relationships that it wasn't that you looked at them and said, I hate you, I'm done, but you just kind of grew distant? Because maybe you didn't believe anymore the, the, who they were and what they said and whatever, and so it just grew distant. Sometimes that's how it is with God. We begin to fall away, just our hearts grow distant. Or we just forget about them. We just don't really even think about them anymore. All of those things can be a falling away. Or we just don't care about them anymore. There's just an apathy of like, okay, sure, God's there, but... Uh. See, if we don't believe who God is, then our hearts begin to drift away from Him. Because we see no need for Him, and we don't, we don't really believe He's the God He says He is. And here's what he says about all of this. He also says this. Take care, brothers. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. You know what that means? That means this is our natural tendency. This means this is our drift. It means this is the natural flow that our hearts will go in if we don't take care. See, when it says, look, here's the life that you don't want. Here's the life that God doesn't want for you. Here's the core issue, unbelief, that you would really miss out on who God is and what he says he does, that you would miss out on him. You wouldn't actually be able to live in a home and enjoy life with that kind of father. You would miss out on that. What he says is take care. Otherwise, that'll happen. Take care because that's the natural drift of our hearts. You know this. None of us drift into going, man, I just love God so much. How'd you get there? I don't know. I just drifted there. None of us just go, man, I just feel really confident that God is for me. How come? I, I just ended up here. You know that our natural tendency of our heart is to drift away, to start to forget about God, to start to not believe certain things about God, to start to get apathetic about God. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that that's the natural drift of our hearts, which is why he says, take care, that if we don't pay attention, this is what will happen? Okay, so we're asking this question, why do we need others to grow and experience life with God? But I, but I want to begin by saying, what's the life that we don't want? What's the life that we're actually in danger of experiencing? So how do we, how does he say, how does he say that we don't end up in this place? So he says, here's the life you don't want, a life of unbelief, a life that would actually lead you to fall away from God. How is it that we escape from that? And there's a lot of things that he could have said, right? If you think about, man, how, how can you escape from unbelief? And he could have said, make sure you pray. And he could have said, make sure you read the Bible. 
He could have said, make sure you, you know, listen to good music or make sure you podcast or make sure you read or make sure you're just aware that this is a tendency. That way you don't go in that direction. I mean, he could have said a lot of different things of, hey, there's a danger out there that you might have an unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from God, that leads you to miss out on all that God would want for you to know and experience. So there's a lot of things he could have said, but here's what he said. Take care. Instead, Instead, what we need is exhort one another. And we'll come back to the word exhort, but, but I want to just point this out. He says, look, we all have this danger of having a heart of unbelief. We all have a danger of falling away from God. We all have a danger of those things, and it's, and it's the natural drift that our hearts will go towards, which is why he says, take care. It's the natural drift that will flow into. And he says, look, I don't want this for you, so... And he doesn't say, go read your Bible or go pray. or He doesn't say anything that we are necessarily supposed to do. But he says, you need other people. Take care that you don't fall away from God. Take care that you don't develop unbelief. What you need is other people. What you need is one another doing something for you. Now, this brings us to our question. Why do we need others? Because what he says is the worst thing that could happen in your life is you wouldn't actually know who God is. That you would have a good father and not actually know that. That you would have a God that's for you and cares for you and protects you and, and you wouldn't actually know that. You would live as if that wasn't true. He says that's the worst thing that could happen. And it would start to lead you to not actually care about him anymore. And so what you need is other people. But this brings us back to the question, Why? Why isn't it something we can just handle on our own? Why do we need others to grow and experience life with God? And here's what he says. He says that one of the things that sin does to us, one of the things that happens is we become self-deceived. He says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this is a really important phrase. Because here's what it means. One of the qualities of sin, one of the properties of sin, if you could put sin in a microscope and look at uh, what makes it up, one of the things that you would see is that it's something that causes us to deceive ourselves. One of the things that sin does is it causes us to deceive ourselves, to trick ourselves, to tell ourselves lies. So think about this. Any, anything that you've ever done that you know you shouldn't have done, I'm not trying to put judgments on the things that you've done, but just think about the things in your life that you've done that you know you shouldn't have done. Things that you look at and you look back and go, man, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. Things you look back at in your life, in the moment that you were choosing those things, in the moment that you were saying, I'm going to do this, you were talking to yourself. And you were telling yourself, this is okay. And you were arguing with yourself, maybe even. Maybe there was even a part of you that said, hey, I probably shouldn't do this. But you argued and you gave good reasons. And you maybe even gave excuses of why you're the exception or why that's not really what it means or it's actually okay. Or, and you were convincing yourself. See, one of the things that sin does is we deceive ourselves. We talk to our, you know, if somebody deceives you, what they say is, hey, I'm going to tell you that this is the right way, and they know it's not really the right way, but they're trying to trick you. 
right? A con artist, they do something where they say, hey, look at this. You can make a lot of money if you give me a little bit of money, then you'll make a lot of money, okay? That's, that's what deception is. But what sin does is causes us to deceive ourselves. We say to ourselves, hey, look, you really can do this. It really is okay. Yeah, I know that you thought this, but it'll be okay. You can work on it later. You can think about this. And, and we convince ourselves. I've known people that are addicted to porn, and they say, I'm just appreciating beauty. And maybe that sounds silly, or maybe that sounds like something you've told yourself. But that kind of logic, we begin to tell ourselves, hey, this is okay, this is fine, and here's the reasons why, and here's the excuses why. So one of the things that sin does is it causes us to deceive ourselves, to tell ourselves things that are not true, but that we actually let ourselves believe are true. And here's what the effect of that is. He says the effect of that is it hardens us. The effect of continually deceiving ourselves, the effect of continually telling ourselves excuses or, or different reasons or why we're the exception, the effect is that it hardens us, that it begins to put layers around our heart. It begins to put defenses around our heart that build up over time. So the more that you say, this is okay, the more that you say, yeah, but, the more you do that, what you begin to do is harden your heart. Which, think about that as in, you are, you are guarding your heart from allowing truth to get in. You're guarding your heart and protecting it. It's getting harder and harder so that the core can no longer be reached. That you are hardening it. You're building layers of defenses and protection around it. Which means this. It's harder and harder for when you tell yourself the truth for that to get through. The deceit has allowed a hardness to overcome your heart. Now, here's what that means. Or here's actually not, here's not what it means. Here, here's just a question I want you to think about as you're hearing this. I want you to assess. Here's a good way to know if this is where maybe perhaps you are beginning to find yourself. Are you soft to the things of God? Are you soft to the things of God? When you hear about who God is, does that naturally tend to affect your heart? When you hear about what God says, when you read the Bible or you listen to what God teaches, does that naturally tend to affect your heart? And you go, man, I want to do that. When you hear about God's character, when you hear that he is gracious, does that affect your heart? Are you soft? Or does it feel more like when truth comes that it's hard to get through? That it's hard to actually come through to your heart? Do you feel soft to the things of God? Another way to ask this is, what direction do you feel like you are moving in your life? If you've been a Christian for a while... Do you feel like you are getting softer and softer and softer to who God is? So you hear something about God and you go, man, that affects my heart. And you have a desire more and more to obey than you did before. Or do you feel like you're actually in your Christian life growing harder and harder? You're growing more numb, 
truth about God that maybe five years ago really affected your heart now is, eh, okay. Things that God said to do that before you really felt conviction in, now you start to go, eh, okay. Do you feel like you're getting softer and softer? Or do you feel like you're getting harder and harder? See, one of the things he says is this. We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves, and what that does is it builds up hardness. It builds up defenses. It builds up layers and layers where it becomes easier not to believe who God is. It becomes easier and easier to believe, I don't know if God's in control. I don't know if God's good. I don't know if God is gracious. I don't know if God's ways are really the best ways. It becomes easier and easier not to believe who God is. What direction? This is why, this is why he says we need others to grow and experience life with God. Because on our own, we begin to deceive ourselves. And the only voice we listen to is ours. And what that does is get it harder and harder. And we deceive ourselves and we speak. And so our heart is getting harder and harder. This is why he says, you know what you need? You need the words from friends. You need the words from friends. You need the words from one another that will be able to pierce through that hardness. See, as time goes on and we deceive ourselves and give ourselves excuses and give ourselves reasons and give ourselves rationale, it builds a, a layer, a wall around our heart. And he says, you won't be able to break through it by yourself. Because you've trained yourself to listen to your voice, and your voice is deceiving yourself. So what you need is a voice from the outside, a voice that can pierce through the wall, a voice that can pierce through the hardness that will be able to get into our hearts. Think about this. There's certain things that you know are true about God, and you might even tell them to yourself. You might say, man, I know God loves me. Or you might tell yourself, man, I know God's in control. But that never has as much power as if somebody else tells that to you, right? And, and similarly, you, there may be a certain thing that you know, man, I shouldn't do this. And you might even tell yourself that. But if somebody else sits down with you and says, man, you're going in the wrong direction, that has a tendency more so to pierce through your heart. It doesn't mean you will listen to them, but it has a tendency to affect you. You might get angry at them or upset with them. Or you might go, man, you're right. What was I thinking? But the voice of others has a stronger effect on our hearts than ourselves. I was listening to a podcast, This American Life. I don't know if uh, anyone has heard of that. It's a great podcast. It covers just all sorts of different stories and things that people are um, going through in American life. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, there was just this one recently, and it talked about a guy that, that paid somebody to say to him over video that paid someone to say to him, things are hard right now, but you're going to get through it. Things are hard right now, but you're going to get through it. You're loved. He just paid a stranger to say that to him. Now think about that. He could have said that to himself in the mirror. He could have wrote it on a piece of paper. He could have chanted it. But there's something about, even from a stranger, there's something about the words of another person that have the power 
to pierce through the hardness that we've developed. There's something about the words of another person that have the power to cut through the self-deception that we've given to ourselves. So why do we need others to grow and experience all that's offered in life with God? Why do we need others to help us know God is good and he's for us and he's present and he forgives us and all the things of back to that child in the home and he starts not to believe the good that his dad is. Why do we need others? Because we by ourselves start to build up deceit and defenses. And that's why he says you need other people. Now, if this is true, here's what that means. If this is true, if we just take this verse, and for some of you this needs to be a warning. I don't know for who, but for some of you it does. If this is true, if what he says, if we just take this passage at face value, and he says, you will develop an unbelieving heart and fall away from God. If this is true, then what it means is without other people in our life, that will happen. There's no question about it. Without other people in our life, this will happen. It doesn't matter how close you think you are to God. It doesn't matter how much you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you go, well, I've been a Christian for a long time. If this is true, and I believe it is, then without other people in our life, without the deeper kind of friendship that he's talking about, we will develop an unbelieving heart. We will fall away from God. And we ultimately will miss out on who he is, what he says. We need the words of friends to be able to pierce through our hearts. So, where do these kind of words come from? All of that is saying this. I know that's a, a long beginning, but all of that is to say this. We need other people. Can't do it by ourselves. We need the words of other people to pierce through our hearts. So where do those kind of words come from? The words that can pierce through our hearts and help us to see who God is and enjoy him and believe him and, and be near to him instead of fall away from him. Where do these kind of words come from? Because we need these kind of friendships. They're speaking to us. And here, here's the reality. In our friendships and in our relationships, we're speaking to one another all the time. And we're even counseling one another all the time in an informal way, telling each other, hey, I really think you should do this, or hey, what about this? And man, I don't, you don't need to worry about that, or hey, I, it's, everything's going to work out. Or we're, we're saying stuff to each other all the time. We're offering counsel to one another all the time, whether that's advice or encouragement or, hey, you can do it, or hey, God's going to be with it. We're, we're saying stuff to each other all the time. We're doing this all the time, but, but if these words, that, if, if words are what will pierce through our hearts, if words is what will help us actually to believe who God is and enjoy who he is, if we need words, then we want to make sure that those words are actually coming from a place that they should. Because since we're speaking to each other all the time, what if the words that we're saying are not actually the words we should be saying? Has anyone ever said something to you? Has anyone ever given you counsel that was really bad? Has anyone ever given you advice that was actually really stupid? I, I think that means yes. You know? <laughs> so I hear the gasps and the, and the chuckles. If our words aren't coming from a place that actually 
have the power to pierce through the hardness, we might actually help create the hardness. If our words aren't coming from a place that help cultivate belief, we might actually end up discouraging belief. So where do we get the kind of words that we need to be the kind of friends that we want to be and to have the kind of friends that we want to have? And, and here's what he said. And this was the second part of the passage. He says, today, he's quoting this. So he says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. That's what he charges us to do. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. And then he says, today, if you hear his voice, talking about God, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So what he begins to do is say this. We need to exhort one another, to speak to one another, to use our voices to help one another. But then he says that voice that we speak needs to be based on God's voice. And as he continues in the passage, he even fleshes that out more. And he says this, for the word of God is living and active. I don't know what happened here because that's not him. He didn't write it twice, but we'll just, we'll just keep going. He says, for the word of God is, I'll read it here actually. It says, for the word of God is living and active. One second, let me find my place here. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So here's what he says. The word of God, the word of God speaks to us through one another. He says, today if you hear his voice, and then he goes on to talk about that, saying what the word of God does, that the word of God pierces, it cuts through everything. It exposes, it shows what's there, it shows what's hidden. See, we harden our hearts, but what the word of God does, and I know this doesn't have all of it on here, but the word of God does is it pierces through the intentions of the heart. It's living and active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it can pierce through whatever hardness has developed. Another section of scripture that begins to talk about how we do this is Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, he goes on to say. Now here's, here's what all of this means. Let me put this together. Where do these kind of words come from? Here's where they come from. He says, what we need as we are exhorting one another is God's voice. And God's voice comes through God's word. And what God's word does is it can pierce through. It can cut through everything that's there and it can get straight to the heart, the very thing that we've guarded. And in Colossians, what it says is this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that then we can encourage one another, admonish one another, even sing to one another. So where do these words come from? Here's where it comes from. If we want to be able to offer the kind of words to one another that pierces through hardness of heart, that helps one another believe and see who God is and enjoy him, if we want those kind of words that have the power to do that, we have to be letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that it then comes out of us to one another. So we're not just giving our words, 
So we're not just giving our advice and our thoughts and our good, uh, you know, whatever, just ideas that we have, but, but the word of God is coming into us and then coming through us. That's the word that has the power to pierce through hearts, that has the power to pierce through hardness. So here's my question for us. We're speaking to one another all the time. We're offering counsel and advice to one another all the time. How do you know that that's actually helping? How do you know if that's actually helping a heart believe and draw near to God or fall away from God? Is your word that you speak based on the word of God dwelling in you richly? There's an author that I love named Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City and written several books. Some of you are laughing because you, you didn't have to guess who that author, when I said that. There's an author I love. Uh, there's like three authors I love, and he's one of them. But I was at a conference this week, and there's a speaker there who was a pastor with uh, Mr. Tim Keller, Timmy, as I call him. There was a, it was a, he doesn't know that, but I sent him a lot of texts. He never responds, but um, he, uh, not really, but he, um, he there's, an, there's an, another pastor that spent a lot of time with him. He was a pastor in New York with him for a couple decades. And he's written some books. And, and this guy, his name is Scott. Um, I, I love this guy. And he was speaking at this conference. And I told my wife, I was like, man, I'm really excited to hear from him. Not because I actually like him that much. But he sound, I can tell he has spent time with Keller. Like it sounds like Keller when he talks. Now that's a silly illustration that shows my psychotic uh, um, you know, leanings. But... But it, what it means is this. This person spent a bunch of time with Keller. And Keller's words and Keller's teachings and Keller's sermons and Keller's counsel over the years, you can tell, has gotten inside of this guy. You can tell. And so it's what comes out of him. This is what Colossians says and what Hebrews says. is If we want to have words that are able to pierce through and able to speak into one another's lives and hearts. We have to let his word dwell in us richly so that we're able to then operate out of those riches, to give those riches. So if we want the kind of words that have the power to pierce through and help one another not fall away from God and actually believe who God is, we have to be letting God's word so get inside of us that when we are talking and when we are speaking to our friends, and when we're helping one another, it's not our words. But his word has gotten inside of us and then flows out of us. Now, last thing is this. How do we do this? How do we give these kinds of words? What we want in life is to be near to God, to experience all that's offered in the Christian life. And, and the author here says this. He says, we won't be able to do that by ourselves. You need other people. You won't be able to experience all that's offered in life with God. You won't be able to actually believe who he is and what he says by yourself. We can't do that. We need other people because we deceive ourselves and we harden our hearts. So we need friends that are speaking words that can pierce through our hearts, words that are coming from God himself and have formed us. That's what we need. So how do we do this? How do we actually give these kind of words? And, and the word he uses is exhort one another. 
It says you need to exhort one another. And, th- and that word, exhort, can mean all sorts of different things. Sometimes, for, for us, it might have a, a connotation of a challenging kind of word, and it can have that. But it can also be a comforting word, an encouraging word, an inviting word. It means, it, it's a very robust word that means all sorts of things. It means to call someone to and invite them to something. And so that might be a challenge, or it might be a comforting word, or something. But, but this word is how he says we actually do it. And, and it could be a few different things, but let me, let, me, let me talk about three different ways we can give these words by exhorting. And the first is maybe the way it's more commonly thought of to exhort as incorrect. And this is hard. None of us like to correct our friends. None of us like to say, hey, I think you're going the wrong way. I want to help you. None of us like to do that. It's hard. But love is not silent. You know that. If you see someone going in a wrong direction and you see someone's heart beginning to fall away from God and you see someone's heart beginning to grow hard to God, love is not silent about that. Love always speaks. We may think, man, I love my friends so I don't want to hurt them and say something, but in reality, it's that we love ourselves and we're trying to protect ourselves and the uncomfortability. We know that when we love people, We want to speak to them. It is love that would say, I want you to know who God is and believe who he is and not fall away from him. And so part of what it means to exhort is to help correct one another. But what's important is this. The aim of those words is the heart. So he says, as we talked about, that the the bad thing that can happen, the life that we don't want, is a heart that doesn't believe. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to go around and correct everybody's behavior. But he says, here's the aim, because here's the issue, the heart. Our problem is we have an unbelieving heart, and so the aim of our words needs to be the heart, because the heart is what leads us. So here's what this means. We want to speak words that help correct where our hearts are not believing who God is. We want to speak words that aim at the heart that help people turn back to God, to help them see reality, to help them see Jesus, to help them live in reality. All the different issues that we experience, whether that's worry or complaining or whatever sins, it comes from we don't believe something about God, and so we begin to wander from Him. And so the aim of our words needs to be the heart, so that we're actually living. Look, if you're filled with worry, and you're anxious about whatever that may be, that is probably because you don't really believe God is good and he's for you and he's in control. Or if you're somebody that's filled with all sorts of, man, I've got to prove myself, or guilt, or shame, it's because you don't really believe that God is a gracious God. And the words of a friend don't just try to correct your behavior and give you advice. The words of a friend aim at your heart to help you live in reality, to help you believe and see who God is, to help you actually go, this is reality. They aim at the heart. So every hundred years, there's like an awesome movie that comes out. This hundred years, it was Lord of the Rings. (laughs) But every 50 years, a great chick flick comes out. 
and, and I don't know what the recent one is. So we probably have to wait a while. But the, the best chick flick of the last 50 years was The Notebook. Some of you are probably too young. That's like an oldie to some of you, right? But The Notebook. And there's a scene in The Notebook. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But uh, it, there's a scene in The Notebook where Ryan Gosling, Noah, where, where here's what he, he's got. He's an old man. And his wife, they've had this great, crazy love story, right? That most guys hate that movie because it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to live up to that, right? So he, they've had this crazy love story. And, and now they're an old couple, but his wife has Alzheimer's. And he goes and he visits her. And he goes and he visits her and he'll read her letters and he'll tell her the story of their love. And, and she always forgets. She doesn't, she doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, he shows up. She's like, who are you? And, you know, I don't know. I don't have the lines memorized, or at least I won't admit that I do. And she shows up. And she doesn't really know who he is. But as he begins to tell her truth, as he begins to remind her and tell her this, 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 what happens is she wakes up for a moment. And she lives in reality for a moment. The forgetfulness is gone. The Alzheimer's in that moment, the effects of it are gone. And she lives in reality for a moment. And she, I don't remember, you know, wraps her arms around him and, oh, Noah, and blah, whatever, and they kiss and, you know. But that is what correction is supposed to be. Correction is not supposed to be just us wandering around saying, this behavior is bad, this behavior is bad, stop, stop, stop. Because correction is to aim at the heart. So that there's an experience of we come back to reality. And we go, oh, that's who you are, God. That's what I've been missing. Reality is I have a husband that loves me, and we've got this great love story together, and you're not a stranger, and you do care for me. And oh, real That's reality. Correction is to aim at the heart and say, wake up to reality again, my friend. Remember who God is. And the words of friends that do that help us, call us back to reality. That's the correction that he's talking about. That aims at the unbelief and helps to reawaken what reality is. So here's what that means as you seek to do this, how we do this is, you look at your friends, and this is why all the other things that we've been talking about, of loving each other and knowing each other and asking good questions, is where does your friend need to believe God? What are they dealing with in life right now? What are they facing in life right now? And they need to see reality once again of who Jesus is. Where is it that they are developing unbelief? What are they going through in life where unbelief is starting to take over and you need to help them see who God is? That's the question we have to ask as friends that seek to give these kind of words. The second, first kind is correction. Second kind is encouragement, which is to call out where we see God working in each other's lives. See, to exhort can be to say, hey, there's unbelief in your heart and I want to help you see truth. But to exhort can also be to encourage and to say, I see God working in your life. I see God working here, which helps to cultivate belief. And this can be a one-time thing, an incident that you see. You say, man, I see God working here in your life. Or it can be a pattern. Man, I've seen generosity flow out of you. I want you to know how awesome it is that God is working in you to create a generous spirit. This can even be when people confess sin and you say, man, that, I'm so glad that God is working in your life to the place that you would have a humility to want help with it. See, we need encouragement. We need correction. We need pe people to help us see belief that we don't believe. We need that. But we also need encouragement. People to say, look where God's working. Isn't that so rare? 
Isn't it so rare that, I mean, most of us can point to a person in our life that has done that. And it's significant because it's just usually one person and maybe two, a coach or a teacher. But it's significant because it's rare and it shouldn't be to exhort one another. Part of how we help each other's hearts not grow hard and develop unbelief is we exhort by correcting, but we exhort by encouraging and saying, I see God working in your life. I see God in your kindness. I see God in your gentleness. I see God in the way that you are gracious towards others. I see God's heart for children in the way that you uh, love those kids around you. I see God's heart for serving. I see God's faithfulness when I look at you. You know, I, there's a pastor friend of mine that is older than I am, has been doing ministry for a long, 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 long time. And one time I wrote him, uh, just not even that long, just an email, and encouraged him and told him thank you and you know, the different things that he's done in my life. And he told me later that he read that note around his family dinner table. And it's not because my note was so eloquent and amazing. I mean, it was just a stupid little email. And he didn't say this, but I think, man, why would that be so significant that he would read it around his family dinner table? It's because even this man who's been investing in people's lives for so long and God has been doing so much through him, is, doesn't, it's rare that people will actually say, look where God's working in your life. Man, that's awesome. That helps cultivate belief. And sadly to me, this is so rare. We don't do this. And there's a lot of reasons I'm getting you know, over on time here and I can't go into it, but I would encourage us to slow down, to look at the good that we see in people's lives, to thank them, to appreciate them, to encourage them. That's part of what it means to exhort. And then correction, encouragement, and lastly, the kind of how we give these words is, is when we do them. And look what he says. He says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Every day as long as it's called today. He says we need this to happen every single day because we have issues every single day. We have a tendency to drift from God every single day. We have a tendency to develop hardness in our hearts every single day. We are speaking to ourselves and deceiving ourselves every single day. There's things about God that we need to believe every day. We need encouragement every day. Isn't it amazing that God actually wants us to experience the truth of who he is, not once in a while, not once a week, but every day. He wants us to know him. He says we need to do this every day, which means it's a lifestyle thing. It means it's not just I schedule an appointment to have someone exhort me or encourage me. It's a lifestyle thing. It's little conversations and big conversations. This is why for us as a church, community groups are so important because these are the people in your life that can say we are going to actually be in each other's lives every day. Or frequently at least, you know. How about every other day? You know? But it means it's a lifestyle. It means that you are always having people in your life. We need this every day. He says, do this every day. What if we actually took that seriously? What if we actually took it seriously that both we needed every day people speaking to us in little moments and big moments, and that we were to do that to one another every day? 
He says, this is a lifestyle that we need every day. And look who he's talking to. He says, brothers. He doesn't say, hey, you need a pastor to say this to you every day. He doesn't say, you need a counselor to say this to you every day. And I'm not saying counselors and pastors are bad. I happen to be one of those. He doesn't say that you need a specialist, but he says, brothers. Every day, do this to one another. Is this your lifestyle? Is your lifestyle to be speaking every day to your friends? Exhorting, encouraging, correcting, helping them believe. If it's not, then we're not actually loving our friends. If it's not, we're not actually loving our friends. Because if what he says is true, that we fall away from God and we develop an unbelieving heart without this happening every day, then if this is not our lifestyle with our friends, then we're not loving our friends. We're actually saying, I don't care if you fall away from God. I don't care if you develop an unbelieving heart. I don't care if there's beautiful realities about who God is and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his power. I don't care if you miss out on those. Is this your lifestyle? A lot of times we're scared to do this. We just want friends to drink with and camp with and, and ski with and, and hike with. And all those are awesome things. Man, do those all the time. And while you do those, every day do this. This is what love looks like for our friends. What if we were surrounded in this kind of culture? I don't know if you grew up like this. But some people grow up in an abusive culture, a verbally abusive culture. I know physical also, but some people grow up in a verbally abusive culture. Maybe you had a father or a mother that always told you you were dumb or stupid or fat or, or you brought home your report card and it was never good enough or anything you were interested in. They didn't care or they actually shouted at you and screamed at you and called you names. That affects you. If you grow up in that kind of culture, that develops you. It affects your heart. But what if we grew up in this culture? What if our church community can be a place where every day we're actually hearing who God is? And every day we're actually hearing what he's done for us. And every day we're actually hearing this from our friends all the time. Don't you think that would affect us? Don't you think that would develop something? Don't you think that that would shine the glory of who God is as it begins to change us? This is what the calling of the church is, he says. Take care, brothers and sisters, that you be the kind of community where every day you're reminded and you're seeing who God is and it's affecting so your heart begins to believe. This is what God wants for you. If you're not a Christian, God wants you to experience this kind of community. And my heart as a pastor for us is we would experience this. And just as we end to take communion, just remember why it is that he wants this. The reason he wants this, it said in the, in the passage, is so we don't fall away from the living God and that we come to share in Christ. See, what, what God wants is he saved us. He's gone to the cross and he's forgiven our sins and died in our place. And he, he wants to draw near to us but he doesn't want that to just be some reality in the past. He wants every day for us to be drawn near to him, not to fall away, but to know I'm near you, I'm for you. This is still the God I am. 
This is still the Savior I am. He wants every day for us to be able to share in all that he is and all that he's done. See, God is such a good God. He doesn't just do some one-time thing in the past. But he says, every day, I want you to know and experience. I want your heart to. I want your heart to believe the goodness of what I've done. I want you to share in what I've done. When we take communion, that's what we remember. That we have a Savior that has died in our place for our sins, forgiven us, and brings us into a family, brings us into a community where we can draw near to Him. And every day, have our hearts be reminded of who He is. So let's sing, let's pray, and we will end our time. Father, thank You for this truth. I thank You, God, that You want us to share in the realities of the salvation that you've given to us. You want it to be fresh for us. You know there's areas in our hearts where we don't believe and you want to help us see you. You want us to live in a community of truth where who you are is actually real to us. And I pray that you would help us to receive this. And I pray you would help us to grow as this kind of community. That you would help us to be the kind of community that is speaking your words every day to one another so that we may believe, Jesus. Help us even as we uh, close our time, God, to let this word go deeper into our hearts. In your name, Jesus, we pray.